2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell on their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. 
And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. All the great stories, um, they have a moment, don't they, where all the action slows right down and the story zooms right in on the key character in the story um, and they reveal their inner motivations, a window into their desires, both past and future. Chapter 7, where we'll spend most of our time this morning, is that moment in this Samuel story. Uh, This chapter, it revolves around a chat from the main character, God himself. Just a few short, sharp sentences from God. Uh, The action and the drama of the previous six chapters all suddenly stop. And God, he lays his heart bare for us to get what he's doing and why he's doing it. Uh, This might just be the most important chapter in the whole Bible story because it plainly connects all the promises from Abraham in Genesis to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Should I say that again? Just so we get our heads around that? It plainly connects all the promises from Abraham in Genesis to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. In fact, these words still shape human history today. Hopefully we'll see why by the end of today. As we start out, look at how David describes what God says here. End of verse 19. End of verse 19, look down with me. This, meaning what God has just said, this is instruction for mankind. What a weird thing for David to say, isn't it? What does he mean? Instruction is an odd word for David to pick. That word instruction, it means law or or even direction. See, David has twigged. This is the direction, the very trajectory of all humanity forevermore. This is what humanity must pay attention to, humanity's law, if you like. This promise is the way God will save the whole world. Um, If you've never decided to be a follower of Jesus, the king of the whole world... I'm sure there'll be some of them of you here today, more than just one or two. Let this sink in for you today. You are rejecting the king 
that God has chosen. And I'd like to say there is not a single good reason why we should do that. Not a single good reason. Hopefully you'll see why by the end of today. You see, when when the New Testament announces Jesus as the Christ, Christ or Messiah, meaning God's chosen king for all time and for all space, well, Christ, it, it comes from here. Today we're going to try and get hold of that. Uh, this is the start of the hunt for the Messiah. All the prophets, all the Psalms, they will write about the Christ based on this chapter, these words from God. It's that important. Now, if we were to pick a word, a key word for this chapter, house might just be it, house. You'll see in that little table on your handouts, uh, the brilliant way that house morphs throughout this chapter. Uh, David first plans to build a house. Simple enough. He suddenly fancies himself as something of an architect. God then gives David some critical notes on his architectural plans. God's revisions are pretty massive. He basically wants to keep the word house and change almost everything else about David's plan, who makes it, what it will be like, what it will be for, how long it will last. Even what we mean by the word house is actually kind of changed. It starts with palace, then temple, then it ends in dynasty. And what we need to grasp hold of is this. God's plan for all humanity is so so much better than David could have ever dreamt or imagined. David wants to upgrade God's accommodation from a tent to a palace. God has something bigger than interior design in view. As we jump in, let's just feel the moment in the story that provokes this eternally significant chat, as Sarah helped us with earlier so well. Chapter 7, verse 1. David, he's enthroned in Jerusalem. Chapter 5. Uh, God is now re-enthroned through the ark in the city, chapter 6. And all the enemies are subdued, which are later listed in chapter 8. In short, David, he's arrived. Job done. What a king. David could not have achieved any more. The king has united a nation, defeated the enemy, and put God in his rightful place. It's as if he was sat there with his feet up, twiddling his war-torn thumbs. And when it suddenly dawns on him, I'm sat here in, verse 2, this house of cedar, essentially a palace, and God's in a tent, essentially poles and sticks ready to be moved in a jiffy. How backwards is this? Me, God's servant, in my settled grandeur compared to God himself in that travel-worn, temporary, modest tent. This cannot be right. So David thinks, let's do something about this. We could easily get on board with that idea, couldn't we? It seems right to us. Even Nathan the prophet gets on board with the idea too. But it turns out God isn't wildly impressed with the idea. I love his response in verse 7. I've been in a tent all these years, and never once did I ask anybody for a palace like yours, David. This is if he's saying, come on, David, get a grip. Are you trying to domesticate me? Look, 
let me show you what I'm actually all about. And with that, we turn to God's notes on David's architectural plans for a house. The big thing God tells David is that God will build our first point, an eternal house, an eternal house. But just before we get to the eternal house uh, that God will build, we need to briefly focus on the first few words of verse 13. God responds, in a sense, in this moment, for these few words, directly to David's initial housing request. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. Now, just in these words, just in these words, and only these words, God is talking about he, meaning David's future son, Solomon. He will build God a house, meaning here a temple. And that's pretty important for obvious reasons, primarily of which the temple was how people knew God. What a role for Solomon. But we mustn't spend too much time dwelling on this, in contrast to the amount of time God spends on what seems to be the far bigger, far more important promise. Beyond those few words of verse 13, most of God's response to David is given over to talk about a different future house, an even more important, an eternal house. This eternal house, well, it turns out it's David's line, a family tree, his reigning dynasty. Look at the end of verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom, key word, forever. God will never let this house come to an end. End of verse 16. Your house and your kingdom, and the end of the verse, your throne shall be established, key word, forever. And did you notice who the chief architect and builder of this house is going to be? Not David, or even his son Solomon, but God himself. And verse 11, the Lord will make you a house. Verse 13, I will establish or even build the throne of his kingdom forever. So let's just be clear. David proposed building the initial house for God, the palace. Solomon, his son, will build the temple house. That won't last forever. But God will build an eternal house which will last forever. Why does all this matter? Why does this eternal house that God will build matter? Well, we tend not to really feel uh, the goodness of all this, I think. Um, We talk about inheritance and family trees and succession, and it can all feel a little bit tax code, boring, Um, regulation, theory, far off. But remember how David thinks this is the direction of mankind. This changes the course of human history. This eternal house, it's God's idea, not David's. This is what God is doing in the world eternally, including today. If you like, this is God's hinge in the Bible storyline. Looking back from this point onwards, we could say, in the story, we must hear all the echoes of the promises from Abraham. Did you spot that when Lyndon read it to us? 
in verse 10 and verse 11, the great place, a secure place, a great name, a secure place, peace and rest. It's, it's hitting all those promises made to Abraham. And this is why God raised up David as king. Did you realize that? Did you spot that little summary of David's life in verses 8 and 9? Why did God raise up David? As, as David um, was raised up from following sheep to shepherding as prince over Israel, why did God do that? Well, it was all to keep that promise so long ago to Abraham. So that's looking back from this point in the story. Looking forward from this point in the story onwards, everything that the Old Testament will go on to say about a Messiah to come in the Psalms and the prophets, they look back on these words. This is God's hinge in the Bible storyline. See, God wants to save a people, and he's going to save a people through a king from David's line. I mean, who knew a family tree could be that significant? Why else does it matter? I mean, we all want something that lasts forever, don't we? Deep down, we really do. But frankly, I think we've resigned ourselves to the reality that nothing can t- t- we can touch lasts forever. Kingdoms rise, empires fall. It happens over and over again. It's almost predictable. It's just not normal for anything to last all that long in our lives normally. Certainly nothing seems to last forever. But you see, this, David's house, built by God himself, this is the one thing that can never, ever be changed. We need to realize that. There's only one thing at the center of the universe which is immovable, unshakable, on rock-solid foundations. God will build an eternal house. So in all the turbulence and chaos and unpredictability of your world that you're in, which I don't have a clue what that is, I can guarantee there's only one thing that will never ever move. And that is that God has a king on his throne. We can fix our lives on this. We can orientate our whole thinking around this. God will never go back on this word. David's house, it will last forever. Throughout all of human history, come what may, this is set in stone. It's secure. In fact, there could be nothing more secure. Um, I couldn't help uh, thinking this week about that silly English idiom. Um, Do you know it's safe as houses? Which is meant to mean very safe. But it's just not true, is it? It's just not true. Houses lose value. They flood. They break. They constantly need fixing, even knocking down and starting again. Houses are just not safe certainly not eternally secure. Whereas the only house that is actually safe and truly secure is it's David's house that God will eternally build. Maybe we should change the phrase and, and make it become safe as David's house. 
Slightly less catchy, but at least it's true. But there's more to this promise that we need to see. Now, here's the thing, right? Back in 1 Samuel, uh, when King Saul... Remember Saul? David's pretty bad predecessor. When King Saul disobeyed what God said, Samuel told him, and for your notes, this is 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13. This is what Samuel told him. He said, You have not kept the command of the Lord, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel, here's the key word, forever. When I first read that, my eyes nearly popped out. Saul's kingdom, at least in theory, could have been eternal, according to that verse. Everything that God is promising of David's line now, if only Saul had obeyed, could have come true of his kingdom. Why wasn't it? Why didn't it last forever? Well, it's obvious, both in the verse and because we know what humanity has been like ever since Adam. Sin. Saul disobeyed. He made it very plain in that verse. Sin prevented Saul's kingdom from from lasting forever. But this sets us up for the crux of why this promise from the Lord is going to be totally different to anything that has come before. If you like, how will David's kingdom be different to Saul's kingdom? Our second point today, God will build an eternal house. How? As sin will be treated differently. As sin will be treated differently. This is at the very heart of God's promise. Look with me at verse 14. This verse, it's confused me for years. And it's a complicated little verse. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, let's not get the cart before the horse. It's not, first and foremost, about God the Father and Jesus the Son. It's not a prediction verse. Though it does promise something towards that end goal, ultimately. No, think what the original hearers would have heard. We need to think um, about Exodus, where we've been in our small groups. God has always described his relationship with Israel as a father-son relationship. Israel were sons, only by gracious adoption, mind. And we've loved that, haven't we, in, uh, in Exodus this year? We've been thinking about it so much. It's beautiful. God adopts Israel to be like his son. It's the gospel in miniature, right? So now in this moment, the first understanding must be this. The promises to Abraham that we mentioned earlier, they are now focused on David's house, on David's kids, the future kings. Israel's chances of relationship with God are now locked into the king. David's children will be like a son of God, like Israel were. And so the the future kings must love and obey God, like Israel always had to. Why? Why must the, the king obey? Well, God would discipline any of his disobedient sons, like any decent father does. 
Verse 14, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the, the stripes of the sons of men. Now, there is a but in the start of verse 15, which we'll come to. It's very important. First, though, we must realize this here is first and foremost about David and Solomon. When they sinned, they would be disciplined. Sin would not be tolerated of them anymore. And that's a really good thing for God to take sin seriously. We, we can't be ruled by unjust kings. Samuel has vividly taught us not to want that already so far in the book, hasn't he? So, as David sinned, which he will do spectacularly, just keep reading for four more chapters, then God will be duty-bound to discipline him. Same with Saul. Same with every son of David after that. When they sinned, like any good father, discipline had to follow. Same with every child. But there's a but. And it's a glorious but, isn't it? Of verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him like it did from Saul. In other words, God's whole relationship with the king's sin won't ever change God's steadfast love to David's eternal house. It's why the house is totally secure, can never be touched, totally immovable. So when, and not if, but when the relationship of father to son, God to king, is tested by sin, we can still have great confidence that God's love to the king and his house will never change. Now we need to be slightly careful. The, these verses, they don't say that the kingdom won't ever be lost for a time. God's promise doesn't say that, does it? It just says that the house, it might even look so fragile one day that we think it might have disappeared. But we can know that it's not gone. The love remains persistent. The commitments of the throne won't ever, ever die. What God won't do is what the verse says. His loving status will never change. He won't do to Solomon and to any of the kings after him as he did to Saul. God's steadfast love will not leave David's house. The Lord disciplines those he loves, and he'll keep on loving them. Why does this matter? Sin being dealt with is the problem of the whole Bible story, isn't it? There's nothing else more significant. So in terms of God's relationship with man, this is the most important promise so far in the Bible. Sin won't jeopardize God's loving commitment to this house. Well, that sets up a tension for us, doesn't it? We presume that every king is always going to sin. Why would we think otherwise? It's been true ever since Adam. And to this point in the Bible, there are zero examples of sinless humans to date. We're thinking of a sinless king. It's kind of too good to be true. 
So this promise is going to be put under pressure constantly. Do you feel that? An ongoing question we could ask from this point on the story is something like this. How will God's discipline be held in tension with God's eternal house? Indeed, it's the live question as we dive further into the book. Um, How is everlasting love from God when David's kids keep on sinning actually going to work in practice? What's that actually going to look like? And of course, um, we have the benefit of hindsight. And we can see how this all works out in King Jesus, King David's greater son. I mean, he was the only one of David's son who never committed iniquity. Um, He was the only one of David's sons who never demanded discipline. That's one of the reasons why the Lord Jesus is just so wonderful, isn't it? The second half of verse 14 doesn't apply to Jesus, does it? He never required a sin to be disciplined by the Lord. And yet, still, the scandal of the gospel is that he took the discipline we all deserved. Isn't that just scandalous? He took all the discipline that the whole world deserved in our place. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus leads us by obeying his Father's will so perfectly, so to bring us into the relationship we were all made for. Friends, if there is anybody here who hasn't realized King Jesus offers anybody life with God, then today would be a great day to step into these words, into this promise and to stand and to trust Jesus. As we close, um, as we've done every week so far, I'd like us to turn to page 331 in your Bibles. You should find yourself there in 2 Samuel chapter 23, page 331. And remember what we've said about the purpose of the book of Samuel from these verses so far. According to David, in these his last words, Halfway through verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, what's that feel like? I'd love to know. Well, this is it. What's it like to live under a good, just king who fears God? Verse 4. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain. That makes grass to sprout from the earth. It's life, isn't it? Sunshine on your face. Did you feel some of the beautiful sunshine this week? That's what it's like to have a good, just king ruling over us. But but have we read on to what David says next? Verse 5. For, in other words, how can David confidently say any of what he's just said? For because... Does not my house stand so with God? For he has made an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and here 
is the key word. Secure. Ordered in all things and secure. David looks at God's promise and he says, the house is now secure. Untouchable. Safer than Fort Knox. This book, this book has made us want for a king like David. Now we know God will forever back David's house. So we must look to the ultimate Christ who fulfills that very picture. I'm going to pray now. Um, and I'm going to pray by stealing lots of the words from David's lips from his prayer in the second half of chapter 7. So let me lead us in prayer. And then I think Tiff is going to continue leading us in prayer after that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord God, who are we, O Lord, that you have brought us this far in our lives? Thank you for what you have said to us this morning. These words that you have spoken to us this morning are the direction of mankind, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have built David an eternal house. And so we marvel at your majesty. You are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that the world has ever seen or heard or imagined. Lord, when we look at ourselves, we ask, who is like your people, O Lord? We are the people you have redeemed to be your own favoured, treasured possession. You have established us for yourself, and we will be your people forever. And so above all else, Father, we pray, your name be magnified forever. And we dare to ask, O Lord, bless us, that we may continue to be in your house, alongside the great King, the Lord Jesus, forever. For your glory we pray these things. Amen.